صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنرز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 اي ام اند باليستاين ريمبرد وذ روبرت مارتن ناصر مشني اند يوسف احمد الريماوي Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Palestine Remembered. Today, we are joined by a fantastic Palestinian from Palestine. We're going to be talking about his work and his journey, but also about what's happening in Palestine. Joining me today is Fatih Nimr, who's the co-founder of Decolonize Palestine. We'll put a link to it in the podcast, but decolonizepalestine.com. And the decolonize is with a Z, not an S as we spell it in Australia. So decolonizepalestine.com. Good morning, Fatih. How are you? Good morning. Hi, Nasser. Thank you for having me. An absolute pleasure. Fatih, whenever we have a new guest, we'd like for them to share with us their Nakba story or Naksa story. Can you tell us about your Palestine journey? Well, on that front, I my story is a little bit more mundane than that, than the Nakba or Naksa. I, I am not a refugee. My mother's side is descended from refugees, but, uh, you know, because how the system works after you get married, you stop being counted as a refugee. It goes to the male relatives. So technically, we are now not any kind of refugee. Uh, my father is from Tobas. And uh, we lived basically all over the West Bank. Uh, I have been uh, really active uh, during the Second Intifada, especially in Palestine. That's where I grew up as a teenager. And the things that uh, we witnessed, the things that we saw, all the things that we learned, it was quite a quite a bloody period. It was very it forms a person when you live through that kind of violence on the daily, seeing everyday tanks, especially during the incursions of Ramallah and Nablus. You see, you know, the streets used to play in or suddenly like a graveyard. You see your neighbors shot. This is the kind of this is mostly how I came to be aware of, of everything and going on. Yeah, it was a rude awakening. Obviously, as a Palestinian, you can never escape that even as a child. But there's some kind of things when you read about it in the abstract. And then when you see it in the street right next to you, it's it's completely different than how you see it. Yeah. So I since the, those times, I've been trying to be more active in the community to try and uh, bring the Palestinian narrative and the Palestinian perspective to uh, a more international audience. And especially since there's uh, huge, huge efforts to censor us in the media and uh, there's I mean, even empirical studies on the matter. That's basically my story in a nutshell. Well, I mean, the reality is you're connected still to your land, which so many of us have only a spiritual connection. You know, our land connection is, re- remains in diaspora. It's fantastic that Palestinians like yourself remain connected, remain steadfast and are so very active. Now, Fatih, your entire life practically has been in Palestine, but you've got a wonderful accent. <laughs> Thank you. I, I think 
It's melodic. How long were you in the UK in, as a um, preschooler? I actually was in the UK from two years old until six years old. So I picked up English and Arabic as, you know, as a native speaker of both languages. But over the years, I've lost contact with anybody speaking with that particular accent. And, you know, all media is Americanized these days and such. So I kind of lost that accent over the years. And I have this, I don't know, uh, mishmash of accents and dialects where I still say Z, but also have this weird American thing going. I don't know what's going on, honestly. Because <laughs> decolonize, you know, when you said to me you'd kindergarten in, in the UK and then decolonize Palestine.com with a Z, you know, like the American Z. Oh, and you didn't spend enough time with the uh, with the King's <laughs> English. Yeah, well, I mean, I blame it all on my academic work here for a few years. I used to work at Birzeit and the specific department we were working at uh, preferred American English spelling. So uh, we worked more in that uh, capacity for the whole few years that I worked there. So um, I guess it's just old habits die hard. And uh, I don't know, I think so. We, we, uh, we've had enough of the English, the King's English over here a bit too long also in the past. So I don't know. It's not like the American English is any better, but... Uh, uh, yeah. You know, you you work with what you have. Indeed. And the reality is we need to be changing public opinion and public pressure on the politicians in the United States. So decolonizepalestine.com with a Z is probably more appropriate. Fatih, tell us about Decolonize Palestine how you came up with the idea and what it is you do. We've been working on Palestine act activism for a long time. We've even gone and done like BDS talks in the US to try and raise awareness about this kind of stuff. But when you go to social media, you start to realize these patterns, these patterns of arguments, these, these images, these memes that keep getting shared that we've been talking about for decades now and debunking over and over and over again. And at some point, I was like, I can't keep fighting the same exact battles that I've been fighting again and again. I'm going to make some kind of central website where it has all the information on it, has a myths database, has an introduction 101 that I can easily link people instead of having to go, you know, because sometimes the the, the comment is like two lines, but in, in order to actually clarify why that's wrong and to actually set the record straight, you'd need like two pages of words to write that. That's how propaganda is designed. It's like a short little... Uh, line that they design it against you and it will take you an hour to explain why this is wrong and this is a lot a method that's been used in the past a lot against palestinians so the website the idea of this website has been going on for a while actually it began as a youtube channel to try and do it in a more video format but then i realized that that needs a little bit more upkeep and you know technical know-how than i know what to do with i was thinking about making it into a little handbook or a kind of you know uh, reference but we eventually we thought that the website would be much more accessible and my uh, lovely wife Rowan she also helped with designing some of the articles of the website especially the rainbow washing articles that's her entirely her baby so we just wanted to have this kind of resource that would be first of all friendly for people who are just learning about Palestine but at the same time for people who are more knowledgeable about Palestine they can go in and search for specific myths and specific arguments that they can have all these references to debunk them because if you notice like most of the accusations against us are just coming out of thin air without any kind of empirical backing and we wanted to kind of debunk that in that way to be like no here are 10 books that say that you're wrong and uh, it just grew from there really we've been updating it every month or so with new articles or editing or fixing our old 
old stuff. You know, there's a lot of stuff uh, behind the, the scenes because we get dozens of attacks, like hack attempts on the website uh, every now and again. So that's that struggling battle, especially around May during Seyf al-Quds when there was a lot of traffic towards the website. That's it in a nutshell. So decolonizepalestine.com. Again, there'll be a link in the website. We're joined by Fatina Mad, co-founder of decolonizepalestine.com. Go there, you'll see just how wonderful a resource it is. Fatih, you spoke about it. The reality of the Zionist talking points is they are practiced, they're workshopped, and they're delivered through the Hasbara manuals to all of the Zionist workshops and youth so that they can quickly derail arguments, feed into existing oriental tropes about our culture, our people, etc. But you've got all of the FAQs and the myths, as well as the Palestine 101. It's such a valuable resource. Definitely. There was a Hasbara manual that was leaked, and we I believe we have a link to it on the Introduction to the Myths database. And it is, you know, it's ridiculous when you think about it. There's so much effort, so many millions of dollars poured into these manuals, and they teach you how to talk. Like they say, oh, if you're in this country, you should focus on this because this is their history. But if you're in a different country, you should emphasize other values. Like in the US, you should talk about, you know, democracy and shared values and such. Uh, in Europe, try to play more on the historical persecution, which is obviously a fact, but it is being used in this way to try and censor Palestinian voices, which is very obvious when anybody looks at, you know, Palestine and Germany. It is absolutely. And I studied in Germany for uh, two years and the situation of Palestinian activism in Germany is very dire. The censorship of anything Palestinian is absolutely dogmatic. You will have the most, you know, hippie, peaceful people who are like refugees welcome. welcome. They will turn into like ethno-nationalists talking about demographic threats when you talk about Palestinians. It is completely completely a very difficult situation. So they tried to build on the histories of these countries to see how they're going to spread the Israeli narrative there. And I think this has also um, been shown that there are also other manuals, not just this one, but this was the one that just happened to leak. So what we have in Australia, because this is also a racist settler colony, settler colonialism here as it is in Palestine, what we have here is the Zionists making connections with our First Nations people saying, just like you're Indigenous and the British came and colonized you, we're Indigenous. No, none of us disavows Jewish connection to the land. But what we are saying that European colonialism, settler colonialism that came to replace an Indigenous people, we are the Indigenous people, not the people who fled European disease, European anti-Semitism. One of the things that the Hasbroists talk about is just how anti-Semitic Palestinians are, as if Palestinians would be okay if a, a Buddhist took their home. But the only reason we're upset is because a Jew is occupying us, that a Jew is denying us our rights and our freedoms, that a Jew imprisons us. We wouldn't care what their religion was. When somebody takes you home, you don't like that person, irrespective of their religion. Yeah, for sure. And that's also like if they actually look at the history of Palestine and the region of Palestine, obviously we're not talking about nation states because this is a whole new concept that arose barely 100 years ago, but people treat it like some kind of intrinsic part of identity. Um, the, there were also Palestinian uprisings against the Ottomans, by the way, like Zahir al-Umar. He's one of the important figures of Palestinian history, and his re revolt was against the Ottomans. Uh, his Actually, his reign was very tolerant of everybody, attracted a lot of people there from every different minority. But that's not the issue. The issue is that nobody, nobody says that there's never been Jewish people here. 
that's that's actually like this betrays the the ethno nationalist way of thinking. Okay, like Palestinians also have a Eid in Nabi Rubin. It's like in Nabi Musa, which is like these kind of little small festivals to celebrate these little like quote unquote minor prophets, you know, because they, they distinguish between minor and major. Like a lot of them are Jewish and a lot of them are Christian. And all Palestinians used to celebrate this, especially in areas like Safad and Haifa and Yafa. This was like this idea of the animosity, this eternal animosity between because they don't understand that Palestinians come in all flavors. They say, oh, Muslims and Jews. Like this is not, this has never been the history of Palestine. Obviously, there have been tensions from time to time. And then they waned and they waxed as time went on. Every country has the same history, but it was not at all comparable to the, to the European racial anti-Semitism that was going on and has persecuted the Jewish people for millennia now. The question has never been about somebody being Jewish and coming to Palestine to live in peace and just be like a Palestinian or what have you, because Palestinian is a nationality, it's not an ethnicity, but because Israelis understand everything through the ethnicity lens, they start to look at Palestine or as Muslim as a, spe a specific ethnic uh, group, and it does doesn't work that way. Palestinians are nationality. It could be encompassing of everybody there, including the indigenous Jewish Palestinians that lived here and the Samaritans. I mean, there's always a community in Jerusalem for sure. Nobody's denying that. The question is not with the Jewish population being here or even if a new Jewish population wanted to come to Palestine, they're welcome. The question is that they wanted, as Zionists, who were influenced by blood and soil ideology of uh, you know ethnic nationalism in Europe, like the Germans and what have you. They wanted a homogenous, closed-off ethnic state. And that's impossible in an area where they were not the majority. And a lot of history just goes from there. How to make this area homogenous? The question of just, you know, people living here. And, and that could be seen also in the attitudes of the original, pa like the Palestinians when they first came. There are uh, the diaries of uh, Chaim Hissen who came in the late 1800s. They're called the Bilu pioneers. And the Palestinian Fallahin were welcoming of them. They taught them how to farm the land. They taught them how to, which which season to grow which, which, by the way, they also ignored because they saw them as inferior, which you could read all about in their diaries. Uh, we have a link to that in an article, by the way, too. So <laughs> so it's like, it's just like coexistence was never a thing that was sought by the Zionist movement from the beginning. And it's just like, it infuriates me when they argue that the problem is that, oh, we just have a problem with Jewish self-determination. Like, no, that's never been the issue. You're talking about things as if they're in a vacuum. You did not just come into an empty piece of land and you're like, hey, this is my country now. No, you kicked out the people. And you said that this is now I'm indigenous, which by the way, when they first tried to lead, like get support from Cecil Rhodes and other colonists around the world, they said, oh, we are the colonists. We're going to civilize the natives, an area that's uncivilized. And now it's flipped absolutely, completely, now that the argument is in a different direction. Like it would absolutely drive somebody like Herzl or Norda or any of the other Zionist family, it would drive them insane to think that there is a kid in Brooklyn saying that Zionism is decolonization. They would go insane. They'd be like, what are you talking about? Like, we are the colonists. We're coming to redeem the land because the native barbarians. I mean, in the Iron Wall, we the Palestinians get called the natives and compared to the quote unquote red Indians, the Native Americans. You know, it's like, I don't know if it's that Zionists don't read their history or is it because they're just going with the flow, just whatever works, like throwing everything out the wall and stick to it. Or maybe it's a combination of both. I don't know. Fatih, you know, and I know that the mental gymnastics the cognitive dissidence necessary for a Zionist to be able to lie down, fall asleep or walk and chew gum is amazing the amount of brain power required to work that, that stuff out. In the same 
breath that they read the Iron Wall, Jabotsky or Herzl writing to Cecil Rhodes about something colonial, not in Africa, but in the Middle East. And then in within a generation or two, they turn that into where the indigenous people, the same indigenous people that decided to plant over all of the destroyed Palestinian villages with trees from the Northern Hemisphere that created the greatest climate catastrophe Palestine's ever ever been. Yeah, they're all invasive species. They're all invasive species and they catch fire and they create lots of problems. They even dried out the swamplands, which they keep saying was they brought civilization. They dried out the swamplands. But then a few years later, it turned out that the flora and fauna in the area are all dying out because the swampland ecosystem has been destroyed. So they quietly flooded it back. But they keep talking about how they dried the swamplands. It's just like you said, it's the cognitive dissonance. It's absolutely off the charts. And it's it seems to be like there is this ability to cancel out everything that goes to the opposite of what they're taught growing up. And whatever anybody says, it's seen as this kind of, you know, conspiracy because we people just, you know, want to see them dead and not because, hey, maybe let's think about this. There were people there before you. Maybe they're not too happy about being ethnically cleansed. Maybe it has nothing to do with your identity. And it's just like, no, no, no way. There's no, there's no way. And even like Israeli historians and like actual historians, not politicians writing about history, because we need to distinguish that those are the most people with the most claims that the politicians writing history, not the actual historians. They're writing about how they're actually like, Lots of ways that 48, for example, could have been avoided. Like for even even like the Syrians were like, okay, we'll take the refugees. Like it was that bad. Okay. Like, but there was just no interest in in pursuing that line of peace. They wanted maximum territory with minimum Palestinians. Like, think at some point the Zayim, I think his name was the the president for a very short while in Syria, he said, I'll take all the Palestinian. Like, I'll take most of the Palestinian refugees in and you can uh, just give us back areas in the north, the fishing rights also in Tabariya and such. But that was also met with rejection. And there were also many times throughout history, especially in the 67 war, that could also be avoided. But that's that's just going too deep right now. But like the, the main idea is that coexistence was never an option because they just the, the Zionist movement was not interested in that. They were interested in maximum territory, minimum people. I can't remember who it was. I first heard it was maximum geography with minimum demography yeah basically (laughs) that basically sums it up now you know we're in the west and the west is very very concerned with democracy in israel because israel is the bastion of democracy in in a sea of theocracy and dictatorship why don't we dispel a little bit about the uh the myth that is democracy in israel (laughs) Well, first of all, the idea that Israel has ever been a democracy for all of its citizens, like it's belied instantly by, well, I mean, history, but I mean, that then again, that's the whole Zionist movement. But then (laughs) it doesn't matter. To begin with, they say that the Palestinians inside the green line, they have all their rights, they're equal citizens, etc. From the founding of the state until 1966, this population lived under military law. They did not have any kind of rights. Their neighborhoods were encircled. They had walls built around them and they were not allowed to leave without permits to the point where one Knesset member compared them to concentration camps, an Israeli Knesset member. It was that bad. After that, obviously, there was the occupation of 67 and then uh, Israelis came to control basically everything between the river and the sea. So the idea that there was ever some kind of you know representative democracy is a lie for Israel. Now, even if you're going to ignore 
the Palestinians who are occupied. Israel as a state itself at best could be described as an ethnocracy, not a democracy. And that's if we're being generous. Ethnocracy is a term by Oren Yiftachel, again, an Israeli uh, scientist. And it basically, it very, very clearly puts the needs and the benefits of one ethnic group over everybody else in the state. And it's a state built and maintained for the benefit of that group, regardless of what happens. These kind of groups, these kind of states have, you know, formal laws like, oh, everybody gets to vote. But at the end of the day, none of that really gets, uh, really has no effect on the state policy because even something as simple as saying, I don't want to be called a Jew or I don't want to be called a Muslim because with the ID card in Israel, you get identified by your ethnic group. You're an Arab, you're a Jew, you're a Druze. So uh, a few years ago, some of some people said, hey, we don't want that. We want to just be called Israeli. We want to be all equal. I mean, isn't this uh, civic nationalism? Like this is the kind of egalitarian nationalism that you say that we always have? Anyway, the court said that no, this would be a strike against the Jewish nature of the state. This is the same court that the Israelis are trying to protect. This is the same court that said it's absolutely legal for the commanding officer in the West Bank to say that we want to destroy the entirety of Masafir Yatta and that his laws are completely legal. And when somebody said, well, what about international law? He says, well, Israeli laws supersede international law. This is this is the court that you know Israelis are in the street trying to save because they are not affected by it. As a matter of fact, they're the ones who benefit from this kind of double system. This is the same court that uphold, upheld the legality of the theft of all Palestinian refugees' properties, their bank accounts, their farms. It's actually like there's a number that up until the, the 70s, all of the agricultural land that Israel had was all from the refugees that left, was just reclaimed. Like none of it was actually new uh, land. So this whole, you know, agricultural miracle of Israel, like blah, 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 uh, this whole economic miracle of Israel, it's all built on basically that the money and the lands and the farms and the houses of the Palestinians that were kicked out. When, when uh, new settlers came from abroad, they were put in a Palestinian house. It's estimated that dropped down the price of settling a family down to like a fifth of what it would cost originally. So the Nakba subsidized Israel. And this subsidy was all given like a green check mark by the this court. This is not even to begin talking about the question of who gets what laws. Because as I said, uh, your ID card, it says what ethnicity you are in Israel. And the thing is, Technically, citizens are equal, but not all nationals are equal. And Israel distinguishes between nationalities and your law is based on nationalities. For example, you could be an Israeli citizen, but an Arab national. You could be an Israeli citizen, but a Jewish national. And your rights come from your nationality, not your citizenship. There are some basic rights that come from citizenship, but there's over 60 or so laws that discriminate based on your nationality. And, and you can all imagine that this is all in the direction of the Jewish population to keep it, you know, as an ethnocracy is to keep them in control of everything. And that's who the state, you know, gives them all the benefits at the expense of everybody else. And I mean, unfortunately, this this database, when I started talking about it, it was barely 40 laws. And over the last 20 years now, it's almost 60 laws. So it's, you know, it's it keeps expanding. It's not like some old ancient laws. These are laws that are new, that are made new, that are like family unification, all of these things. Like it depends on your origin quite simply. Like if you're not Jewish, you don't have these rights. It's, it's just... Let's break down for the, the family reunification law, what that means as a 48 Palestinian, uh, an Arab national 
with Israeli citizenship, what that means to him or her? Well, that means that if, well, as what happened in the Nakba, the Naksa families were torn apart. Some villages were ethnically cleansed, others weren't. Uh, some cities were segmented, others weren't. I mean, you see the wall sometimes going between villages uh, in Palestine, going between them. So when these families try to, uh, for example, if they try to reunify, then they have to go through so much permits and so much. Uh, obviously, the permits are almost never granted. If a Palestinian from 48 wants to marriage a Palestinian from 67, like in the West Bank or Gaza Strip, it's impossible because they would they actually would not allow the kind of, re, you know, to to be reunified this family together. And there have been families who have been waiting for decades to be reunified in that way. And it's not just inside 48. It also affects all Palestinians. Like if I, as a Palestinian with a green ID card, want to marry, let's say, a Palestinian in Germany, like she has a German citizenship, uh, I would not be able to uh, bring her to Palestine because at the end of the day, uh, de facto Israel controls who issues our ID cards. So they want to prevent any preventable increase in Palestinian population. They do not want any new Palestinian population to be uh, gained other than through, you know, uh, the regular means, but like not, they will not give, they will not allow for the naturalization of anybody with uh, outside without a green ID card. And this is why it's so funny that people say, well, the Palestinian Authority is the one in control of your country. Why don't you, you know, talk about them and hold them accountable? Like the Palestinian Authority is not in control, really. Like if, 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 a, if it can't even determine who a Palestinian citizen is, then what is the point? If it can't control its borders, if it can't control its land, what is the point? It is not in control. Can't issue currency, birth certificates, death registry, Nothing. all controlled by Israel. But we don't even have to go here to Germany. I mean, if you wanted to marry, I mean, you're already married, but if you wanted to marry somebody from Jerusalem yeah. who's got a different color ID card to you, you know, only 10 kilometers apart, the Israelis could yeah, deny for that. sure. It's um, there's Deny your ability to live together. Oh, yeah. If it's Jerusalem, it's even uh, worse because if she comes to live with me, uh, she would lose her Jerusalem residence permit and she would be kicked out. She would never be allowed to live in Jerusalem again because of, there's a law called the Jerusalem Center of Life. And a lot of people lost their ability to live in Jerusalem because of that. And I would never be able to go in there and live with her because they simply do not issue that kind of permits to West Bankers. So, yeah, they, they, control, down, they control down to who we marry as well. Last year, Israel had its fifth election in as many years um, and has delivered almost zionism manifest i mean we know what how cruel and brutal and ugly zionism actually is but the world is starting to see it more because there are fascists in the current knesset and in benjamin netanyahu's government and that's manifested itself in the most violent start to a year ever seen what's it like on the ground in palestine oh yeah ah uh... I mean, we've always talked about the ugly face of Zionism and how these governments, like they, they, they differ in the method through which they pursue their goals. Like they have much more diplomatic members sometimes, like Tzipi Libni. She is very diplomatic in how she presents herself, but at the end of the day, she also follows up and um, and pursues the same goals that even a right winger like Netanyahu would. But even like Netanyahu now doesn't even look like the most right wing Israeli. We have people like Benigvir and Smotrich, and they are unabashedly they they represent the the mainstream Zionist Israeli you know right wing, and which is apparently according to all the elections they are now the majority as well. 
they are very honest about what they want. They are very straightforward. And it's in in a in a messed up way, it's kind of refreshing to see them being so upfront about what their eventual goals are and their ultimate goals are. Because this we've been saying this the whole time. Like it's it's just a matter of time until this kind of thing crops up. Right now, everything is very, very tense. Uh, soldiers are very, very trigger happy everywhere. Like crossing any kind of checkpoint to go anywhere uh, is is uh, is very dangerous. Like we have a little farm in Kufurain and we have to pass by two checkpoints to get there. And the soldiers are incredibly trigger happy. They're very nervous. And they have now a sense of impunity. I mean, they already had impunity, to be completely honest. Like, it's not like there's ever been any consequences to shooting a Palestinian for no reason. But now they have even more impunity. Like, they're being encouraged to do this kind of thing, to, to, to you know, assert this power and control over Palestinian in the most vulgar and barbaric way, like is as is with like the right wing movements everywhere. So it's it's actually like it feels risky going out. And I'm I mean I live in Ramallah. It's one of the more you know tame areas. But if you go to a place like Salfit, which the majority of this area see, you can see the settlers or even Nablus, Nablus, Hawara, the, which is close to Nablus. Uh, the settlers are out and in force and they're going all over the place and the soldiers are there just to protect them, but not to stop them. And that's not their goal, obviously not to stop them. But there's this sense of they can just go out and do whatever they want and nobody can stop them and they will be protected while doing this. And now there's talks about this, uh, you know, special militia that will be under the control of Bingvir, which is only going to make things much more worse with much less accountability. Even if it's like zero, now it's going to be like minus. So... It's 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 going in a very very uh, bad direction when it comes to that kind of stuff. Indeed, indeed. But we know you and I know that they can never win. Indigenous peoples' connection to their land is unbreakable. And Fatih, you uh, you and Rowan, and congratulate her, please, for her participation with your work on decolonizedpalestine.com. Again, there'll be a link to that in our website, ladies and gentlemen. Fantastic to have you on the show, Fatih. Thanks so very much for all that you do, and congratulations. No, thank you. Thank you for for this wonderful podcast and for all the great topics that you bring up. And I think it's uh, it's very very needed. So thank you for all of your efforts, and uh, yeah, hope we can work together again in the future. We look forward to it, Fatih. Thanks for listening. Share the podcast. Tell your friends, and remember, there's never been a better time for a free Palestine.